it work? A little bit. All right, there we go. You got to whack it. Uh, <laughs> mic problems continue. We're working on it, though. God keeps us busy. Uh, God also made um, promises long ago, many, many promises to the human race. And one of them is, of course, uh, many of them surround the, the coming of the Savior of the world. And the fact that the Savior of the world would be born from certain people, a line of certain people, starting with Abraham and through David, through Judah, Judah first, then David, who's descendant of Judah. Um, and, you know, it supposedly we, we would conclude that, you know, God wants us to identify him. God wanted Israel to be able to identify him when he came. And that, would, that is important. Uh, the fact that he came from a bunch of people who were sinners and a lot of them uh, not remotely admirable uh, and kings, absolutely, but uh, still people who are far less than, than perfect. Um, and so Matthew would quote John the Baptist, right? And in John's ministry is in Matthew chapter 3. And Matthew would quote John as saying, uh, don't suppose that you can say for yourselves that we have Abraham as our father, and therefore because of that, you know, we're, we're in the clear. Uh, we uh, are good with God, justified. Because John's uh, message is going to be repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And... and you know, he's gonna. He says, "Don't suppose that just because you're a descendant of Abraham that you're you don't need to repent of anything." And that is a uh, the fact that that is born in this genealogy that we see at the beginning of Matthew is that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, but he is completely and utterly unique as one who was born of a virgin, which no one could claim other than him. So uh, the Messiah is identified for us by his lineage. Not just that, but it's necessary. It's necessary because God promised he's going to come through certain people. And uh, that and many other things are absolute proofs to us that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of the world. So let's uh, start in Matthew 1. And let's open up in prayer, thank him for all that God has done for us through our Lord and Savior and his uh, wonderful sacrifice for us that has made for us our salvation. Uh, let's be grateful uh, for his word and all the things that are revealed here in this gospel that are really going to um, uh, improve our spiritual lives and make us all way more appreciative of all that God has done. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you that through uh, so many promises that you have fulfilled in Jesus Christ that he is clearly our Savior, that he is clearly the Lord God who has become a man. He is clearly the uh, head of the church, the high priest, your son, creator of all things. And the one who now sits at your right hand, who is our, as a resurrected man, is our Lord and our husband, our Savior, and all things to us. Of all the people that have ever been born, he is the only one who is worthy of anything. Of all the people who have been born, he is the only one that has any value whatsoever. And because of that, Father, through him, you have made us valuable. And only through him, you have shown us what is valuable. And those things that people don't even know in our world, that, how value, that value comes from you and you alone, through Christ our Lord. So, may we, Father, be enlightened by your word that we may see the true value in the life that you've given us through him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, what I, uh, first I want to make sure that we are reminded as we go through this that... <laughs> This, whatever subunit we're in, in the unit, the main unit here is chapters 1 through 4 of Matthew. This is all a setup to qualify the king. There's multiple references to Old Testament passages 
that are, again, as qualifications of him. We're also going to see his preparation for his ministry, uh, that the, the Father and the Holy Spirit are going to put him through. Uh, these are all indicators of him, and we'll, we'll be able to glean many, many lessons from them to our own selves. Uh, but uh, as we know, this is about him. And this is all leading up to the first discourse, which is the Sermon on the Mount, as it's famously called, which is chapters 5 through 7. So um, the first discourse is the first revelation of things that come from the one who has proven to be the one that history has been waiting for. All Israel's been waiting for, but really all mankind's been waiting for, is salvation, deliverance. What do we do? Even those who didn't know anything about the Jews and about Messiahs and about Moses still had those nagging questions about the purpose of existence and how in the world were we going to be saved, and even their own made-up pagan religions all centered on such questions of eternity and, and you know, how, do, how does mankind fit into the role of things, and that is, of course, all wrapped up in Jesus Christ is the answer. So when we're looking at these individual sections, which today we'll look at the genealogy and the virgin birth, flight from Egypt, uh, flight to Egypt, flight then leaving Egypt to go to Nazareth and the start of his ministry uh, as he gets baptized by John. Each of these are a part of this unit, which is qualifying the king and preparing the king for his ministry. Uh, and, and within them, all of these are going to have lessons to us as long as we don't misapply them in ways. And that's, if you keep things in context, you're far less likely to misinterpret. Uh, and and that, that becomes a problem. But if we stay in context, we know where we are. We can wonderfully enjoy the things that are here. Um, so uh, Matthew is writing to Jews. This is clear to us. Uh, his genealogy starts off with Abraham. Uh, well, actually... The genealogy does, but the introduction of the entire book of this is the book of the genesis of Jesus the Messiah, right off he labels him as Messiah, gives him that title, and calls him the son of David. Uh, and, and so it starts with David in his introduction. So to a Jew that Matthew would be writing to, they would ask, well, uh, if this Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, you know, is he truly a descendant of David? And Matthew proves that in his genealogy. But Matthew also proves here that the virgin birth is, uh, is, has happened because uh, before David, uh, sorry, before Joseph is betrothed to Mary, she's pregnant with child. This is not indicated in the genealogy, but hinted at. Uh, the fact that the Messiah is, you know, we see Mary's name, but we see Joseph introduced as a husband of Mary, and Mary is impregnated. And so that's the only time in this whole genealogy where the verb begotten is in the passive. In every case, it's he begat, he begat, he begat, he begat. Those are all active. Then Mary is begot ten, but not begotten, but you know what I mean, impregnated. Uh, and so this is uh, hinted at here. And so the role of verses 1 through 17 in the book, which is his genealogy, is that Jesus is the Messiah and qualified as a king, the king, uh, as God promised. So uh, where does Matthew's genealogy fit into the entire gospel? It's the plan of God fostered in creation of all mankind. All of human history is completed in one man, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything mankind wants, everything mankind, and, and I mean that is good, that is good. I mean, actually, all that mankind wants is good. It's just that what mankind does is pervert it. Uh, so... Mankind's desire for fulfillment, for enjoyment, for purpose, for a destiny, uh, you name it. Put it all in there. What all mankind longs for, all of it is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. And in all honesty, it makes it simple, simple. 
But for a lot of people in this world, that is all too simple, as we know. So, Matthew 1.1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Just in this first line, we are full of meaning already. And, of course, Matthew is doing this on purpose. Um, this is not just Matthew sitting down saying, all right, well, I guess I better sloth through this difficulty of making a genealogy. Matthew actually makes it way harder on himself than it need be, and he does this on purpose. The first word, the first word in his gospel is biblos, which is the word book, and genesios, uh, genesios, actually, it's the long O there, but genesios is the genitive of uh, genesis, or really, in Greek, it's genesis or genesis or something like that. I don't know where the accent falls. but um, So it's the book of a genealogy. And this is a reference to Genesis itself because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which all the New Testament writers are, when they quote, that's what they're quoting from. Um, there aren't a lot of Hebrew speakers uh, in that age, and uh, actually most people don't read anyway. Most people are illiterate. But amongst the Jews, who are probably the most literate of all people at that time, uh, the language that they generally speak is either Greek or Aramaic. Anyway, all of that is to just show us that in the, uh, sorry, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the, New, of the Old Testament we have it word for word as in Genesis 5.1 and in Genesis 2.4 that this is the book of the generations. And any uh, Jew who knows his Old Testament is going to know this. Uh, so um, right off the bat, Matthew was referring to Genesis, the book of Genesis. But this is not the Genesis of Adam, obviously. This is the Genesis of Jesus, who Matthew says is the Messiah. And so from this, now what we glean from this now, much, much later after Matthew wrote, who have all the Old uh, New Testament, of course we have the Old Testament, but we have all the New Testament, we have all the doctrine or, or the revelation of God right in front of us, is we can take, see, the truths that Matthew is conveying are eternal truths, like every truth, but Matthew has an audience, and he's writing specifically to Jews who he wants to become believers, right? So I talked about this a little bit on Sunday. We say, so what about us? You know, we're not Jews in the first century who are wondering if Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. We know that he is, and we're not Jews, we're Gentiles. Um, so what does this mean for us? What Matthew actually means towards his readers has every truth has this eternal ramification. And it's not that we want to read application in things that Matthew doesn't mean to. We definitely don't want to do that. There's too much of that going on. But what we glean from this is that if you know, if Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis, is that true? You know, we see what is in Genesis is that God creates, but then there's a fall. And then you have all, you have starting off from the fall to the generations to Noah to after the flood to the, the Tower of Babel and all of that nonsense and God divides everybody and then here comes Abraham in chapter 12. And then the rest of the book of Genesis is about Abraham's family right up to Joseph and, you know, in all of that, going back to the, in the beginning, God created. It's not like all of the rest of Genesis was a surprise to him. You know, it's like he's scratching his head in Genesis, I don't know, Genesis 15 and going, what in the world did I start here? What did I do? Should I have done this? You know, like we have, we have issues that are monumental in the race of people, uh, you know, that are made in God's image. And we're terrible. I mean, God made us in his image and we turned into the most awful evil of all the things that are on this planet. We create the most havoc and the most heartache. You know, the, the higher a creation, the better it can be and the worse it can be. 
And so I, I get the point I'm getting to is like all of this monumental, like what is going on here? If you only had Genesis to read from, you'd be like, boy, did God mess things up, right? But then, so Jesus here in this first opening line is the fulfillment of all of that. In the beginning, God created, but we find out that Jesus is the creator. Here comes the creation, and then we fall. But then there's an animal sacrifice. And at that fall, there's this promise that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Like, who's the seed of the woman? Well, here he is. He's finally here. The book of the generations of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know, and we're like, wow, I mean, I wonder who his generations are. Oh, and they're the same old people that you can just read of. Especially in Matthew's account, he lists all the kings. Luke doesn't have these people in his account. Uh, Luke has a genealogy, too, that's different. We'll talk about that a little. But Jesus has brought to fulfillment all that was begun. And that's why the generations end with him. Right? Many generations come, of which we are the product. But our fulfillment happened 2,000 years ago. There's no more after that. You know, uh, people who think they know science and apply evolution to mankind are always wondering what is the next evolutionary step to mankind. They teach this in public schools. They teach it as a fact that man is still evolving and that some form of humanity is coming that's going to be better than what we are now. And what they miss, of course, because they don't have faith and understanding, is that the new humanity already came. And it wasn't an improvement. It was a crucifixion and a resurrection. And that's a whole lot different than a gradual so-called improvement, of which nothing has improved here with the human race. So um, the prominent title we see here of Messiah, together with other titles that Matthew uses in the opening chapters of his gospel, we have Son of David, King of the Jews, he mentions in chapter 2. They make it clear that Matthew is aiming to present an account, not just of some historical figure. He's not here giving a family tree of Jesus only, although that's what I titled the message. It's a theological it's purposely theological to present to God's people, Israel, that their Messiah, their long-awaited deliverer, Messiah, had come. The son of David. Now we see in chapter, oh, sorry, in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Son of David is mentioned first. It's out of order, right? It should be son of Abraham, then son of David. Abraham's born first. But it's David first, and that is because Jesus restricted his ministry entirely to Israel. He told In chapter 10, he told the disciples, don't go to any of the Gentile towns. Go to the villages. Go to the uh, people of Israel. However, when Israel rejected him, which is fully in Matthew chapter 12, so right after Jesus sends out his disciples to the people of Israel in Matthew 12. The people say that all the miracles Jesus does come from the devil. And then Jesus says this is an unforgivable sin. And what he means by that is that the offer of the kingdom to that generation has been removed. And then that is when this invitation, which is right in the middle of Matthew in chapter 13, that the kingdom is offered to Gentiles. And so that's Abraham. I don't have a slide for that. <laughs> Abraham, the, the uh, covenant to Abraham is that all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. That's not what God said to David. David is your house, which is Judah, which is Israel, will uh, be a throne forever. So the fact that in verse 1 we have David first is the limited ministry to Israel. When they said no to him, then Abrahamic covenant is given to the whole world. So we see in, in, the, uh, in Matthew that the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant happening then and there, uh, but not fully fulfilled yet. It's still being fulfilled now. Every time someone becomes a believer in this age, that is another one who has been blessed by the seed of Abraham. 
Okay, so verse 2. All right, we ready for some names. Let's see if we can pronounce them all. Some of them are easier than others. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah. Actually, the word father isn't here. It's fine to have it. It's the verb genao, which means to beget or to give birth to. So it really is Jacob begot Judah. All right, so Jacob's the father of Judah and his brothers. So now when you see a difference, you have this one begat, this one, this one begat, this one, and then something different, then, you know, it's there on purpose. It makes you say, wow, that, that's a different thing. So you have Judah and his brothers. So who's Judah's brothers? The other 11, who are the 12 tribes of Israel. But Judah is singled out, correct? So is Judah being singled out? Why is that? Uh, well, we know that because the uh, promised Messiah was to come through Judah. And Judah is the father, was the father of Perez. And here's another difference. And Zerah by Tamar. So why, well, Perez and Zerah are twins. And when Tamar, now Tamar was married to Judah's son. Now let's see if you can grab hold of this. But you have to go back to Genesis 38. And Tamar was married to Judah's son. His, her, her husband died. And then so there's leveret marriage, which is this thing you see in the book of Ruth where, you know, if your brother dies and he doesn't have children, you have to take, if you're not married, it is your duty to take on his wife to preserve his name and family. And that happened. And then that guy died. And then uh, this other guy named Onan, another son of Judah, he didn't want to marry her. <laughs> And uh, he, um, well, that's the one who spilled his seed on the ground. He, he uh, yeah, he laid with her but was made sure that she didn't get pregnant because he didn't want to have children with her. God killed him. And then, you know, Judah is like, well, you know, when my next son is old enough, I'll have him marry you. And this whole thing goes on. So um, that son grows to of age, and Tamar knows this, and Judah doesn't give him to her. Judah's probably like, well, you know, two of my sons have already died married to you. I'm not going to give you a third one and have him die somehow. So um, he doesn't give the son. So Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, waits for Judah, and sleeps with him, and she gets pregnant. And that's how we get Perez. Judah slept with a prostitute who was his daughter-in-law. Now, everybody who's reading this or hearing this in Israel knows this story. It's truth. And it's not a pretty picture. Judah, the father of the Messiah, had sex with his daughter-in-law, who disguised herself as a prostitute and did it willfully. And then you had twins. Now, Tamar got her comeuppance by having probably the most awful birth experience in the history of birth experiences. She has twins, and uh, Zara sticks his hand out first. <laughs> I've seen two births. My, both my daughters, I've seen. If you saw a hand come out, uh, this being Halloween, that's what you would think. Uh, the midwife ties a, a, a thread around his wrist, and then the hand goes back in, and then that was Zera, but then Perez beats him out of the womb and becomes the firstborn. And Perez actually, he gets a name for this, that uh, actually in the book of Ruth, when Ruth gets, uh, uh, is with child by Boaz, they say to her, may your children be like Perez. In other words, strong birth. <laughs> You know, and, and so anyway, you've got this in verse 3 is a whole thing here. Just in a few lines. But notice, Matthew knows that they know. So he doesn't have to explain all of this. And then Perez, who beat his brother out of the womb, was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Now things get kind of quiet. Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon. 
And Salmon, or Salmon, was the father of Boaz by Rahab. So here's a second woman, which is generally, women are generally not in genealogies, but yet it's an outlier. Again, you have this one begat that one, and that one begat that one, and that one begat that one, and then you have changes. So we have Judah and his brothers, Perez and Zerah and Tamar and that whole mess. And then you have the wonderful story of Boaz and um, uh, uh, Ra- uh, Boaz by Rahab, but Boaz and Ruth. So Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David. And David is labeled as the king. Okay, So David here stands out. So the whole genealogy actually centers on David. Now the division here, as uh, Matthew will share in a bit, is 14. It's 14 names. Uh, they have on the board for you that David's name, which is uh, Dalit, and then Vav, and then Dalit again. Now, Hebrew didn't have any vowels, so if I get my handy dandy, I love using my pen, so why not? Pen. So there's your D, and here's another D, and in the middle is a Vav, which is a V. These little dots in here, the dot in the middle, but these dots at the bottom, these are added later. The original Hebrew didn't have them. Those are ways in which people put in vowels now, but it was DVD. And DVD adds up to 14 because every letter in uh, the Hebrew alphabet has a number attached to it. So Now, is this? did Matthew mean that? Is that why there's 14? Well, there's actually, in this first part of the genealogy in 2 through 6, this is exactly as it is in the Old Testament. If you take, obviously, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12, all the way to David. And that genealogy from Boaz to David is at the end of the book of Ruth. And so Matthew is just taking that right out. So uh, we have uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, then Judah and Tamar. That's all there in the book of Genesis. We, there's no, he's not skipping anything. So they're all there, and there's 14 names. So uh, David's name adds up to 14. That could be an, another indicator. It's just it's very interesting. We can't say for sure. Is that the reason why Matthew is using 14? But now in the next paragraph, uh, Matthew is forcing 14 names. Uh, is actually, there's only 13 generations here. <laughs> if you count the generations, there's only 13. But there's 14 names. And so he's going he's gonna to skip. He's going to delete a, a number of people. That are kings that you would read about in uh, Chronicles or Kings, and he doesn't mention them. And so it looks that we don't have Matthew here to ask him why he did this. But what what we have here is that the first 14 is going to match the second 14. Then he's going to make another division, and then he's going to have another 14, which is actually a 13. And we're you know scholars have been asking these questions for centuries, and we can't figure it out. They can't figure it out. He says 14, but in the last part, there's 13. And, and he, but, but Matthew is fitting it. He's actually purposely deleting names so that he could make this three 14 name sections. So, verse 6, the second part. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. There's another one. But Bathsheba's name is not actually in the original. What it says here is literally of her, of Uriah. So if we were to read this literally, it says David was the father of Solomon, of her, of Uriah. But if you have a New American Standard, they add Bathsheba to, and I see why. I mean, why not? So at least we know who, who, who that is. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, 
or Abaha, Abaha, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, 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 the father of Josiah, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So there's your next big division. And this is significant because it goes from day, you know, Judah. So notice this phrase, Jeconiah and his brothers. Well, the phrase like that, that has come before, is Judah and his brothers. And Judah and his brothers, to them, is given the promise. Right? The promise of Abraham was given to Isaac. The promise of Abraham was also given to Jacob. And the same Abrahamic covenant was repeated by God directly to Isaac and directly to Jacob. And Jacob's 12 sons are the 12 tribes. And from Judah come the kings. And here they come. Who's the first king from the tribe of Judah? It's not Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, but he's a complete failure, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. David is from the tribe of Judah, and here come his sons, their king after king after king after king after king, and then you get to Jeconiah, who is awful. And well, many of them are awful, but Jeconiah and his lot get deported to Babylon. So the promise starts with Judah or at least the kings do, and then you have this line of Judah come to an end. There's never another king after Jeconiah, not another one. And, of course, this Uriah name, where's he doing in there? That's another, he's a Gentile, and he's not even in the line. But Solomon by the wife of Uriah, why not just say Bathsheba? Matthew, we would assume here, and I think pretty confidently, wants to point out David's sin. You know? um, by the way, in, the, in Kings, we read of David's sin. Sam, Samuel and Kings, we read of David's sin. In uh, the book of Chronicles, the, one, the person who wrote the book of Chronicles left all, it centers on David, David and Solomon, but they, they do not include any of David's faults in Chronicles. That's done on purpose. The writer of Chronicles wanted to emphasize David as, uh, you know, the, the, the one who was the great king of Israel through whom was going to come the savior of the world, which, it, which he did. And the writer of Chronicles wanted to centerpiece David as a great king because the people who went into captivity, he wanted them uh, like uh, in a positive mindset. And, you know, and that is not here. <laughs> Matthew doesn't want his readers in a positive mindset so much about David because David did something to Uriah. And, and this is unmistakable right here. It's, it's like highlighted. There's a flashlight on it. And David murdered Uriah. You know, and, and here comes your Messiah. So, uh, now in verse 12 is the last, or the second division, into the last set of names. Uh, I guess we might as well read them. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Now, this is the very Zerubbabel who uh, was the governor of Judah after the return from Babylon. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud, Abahud, the father of Elakim, Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliad, Eliad, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. So Matthew here wants to make sure that we have a lineage to Joseph but also to show that this Joseph is not the actual father of the Messiah. By whom? Now, see that whom there? In English, 
you can't see the gender. In Greek, it's very obvious. It's feminine. By whom Jesus was born. That whom does not refer to Joseph. It refers to Mary. Uh, that's just Greek syntax. And so, you know, this is a place where a little knowledge of Greek actually shows you something that Matthew put there on purpose. In English, whom could be male or female. In Greek here, this whom, it says by, it really could be by her, because the pronoun is feminine, not masculine. So, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Really cool stuff. So, this um, by whom Jesus was born is the first time that this verb was born is in the passive tense. Now, you wouldn't see this at all, especially in the New American Standard, because instead of saying gave birth to or begotten 39 times in the list, which you have is father of. And so it doesn't, you wouldn't even notice it. But you really, it should be uh, this one begat, this one, this one begat, this one, this one begat, this one, and then you have by whom was born. And it's different. It's the same exact verb, but it's in the passive voice. And so being passive, it means that Mary was not impregnated by Joseph, but as Matthew will write in just a little bit here, by the Holy Spirit. So by whom Jesus was born, this is the uniqueness of Christ above all the others, but truly not just his family tree, but the whole human race. No one was born of a virgin besides him. And, you know, however we look at it, this one is the product of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's a lot of theories about, you know, how he's got Mary's DNA in him, but not Joseph and so on. I don't even touch that stuff because it's not, it's not here in the Bible. It's all conjecture. And what I see here, if you just want to take just from the text, take out from the text, is the fact that this man came by the Holy Spirit. Through the vehicle of an actual birth, absolutely. He didn't just appear. So he's born, which makes him truly human. So I think that's the significance of, of the pregnancy of Mary, is that he's 100% grade A human being. But he is no one has been born like he has. So from this whole list, where you've got Gentiles, you've got women, You've got adulteresses, you've got adulterers, you've got murderers. The, the list in the kings, we're going to even go into the sins of some of these people that are in this list. Most of the people, we don't even know who they are. But for the kings that are in that second paragraph, we know who they are. We also know Jacob did and Isaac, even Abraham. There's no one good here. David's a murderer and an adulterer. And yet, here comes this one who's completely different. And everything, everything now is centered in him. All right. So, verse 17. So, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Actually, 14 names. There's only 13 generations if you count them. So that leaves a uh, uh, Matthew, what do you do in question? We can't answer it. You just have to accept it. Uh, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. That one is actually 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations, which is actually 14, I think. Oh, I can't remember now on the list, but it, I know it's not 14 generations, it's 13 uh, but, you know, regardless, what Matthew is doing here is presenting the Messiah in a very theological way. And I'm presenting the birth, the, the family tree of the Messiah in a very theological pattern. In other words, he has left people out. Um, he's not concerned about that. What he's concerned about is that the first 14... He keeps that pattern. 
So he takes from the end, plus we have 14 generations in that first set, which is what the Old Testament says. But the span from Abraham to David is about 1,300 years or 1,200 years. And you need way more than 14 generations to, to fill that gap. I mean, people that have to be living for several hundred years to fill that if you only have 14. So even in the original Old Testament genealogy, somebody's missing. There's several people missing. And I say, well, come on, God. Get your spreadsheet right. You know, if you're a numbers person, this is driving you up a wall. I want to know. You can't just jump. You know, obviously, there's some of these jumps are from father to great-grandson. It's not father to son. Begat. Yeah, well, technically, yeah. And so God's not concerned about getting that all of those ducks in a row. What he's concerned about is that we learn the principle that is behind this. Uh, there's a theological purpose here, which is the fulfillment. So if you got 14, 14, 14 done, it's, it has this nuance to it of things are finished. First 14, second 14, third 14, it's over. And that is the dawning of the fulfillment of man. And it happened. It's not happening. It happened. See, God, as God says, my ways are not your ways, buddy. So as everybody, you know, we're looking to the future. I guess, I, you know, people, people just talk about this. They don't really care about the future. I think most of them, they just want to stay rich and happy and in power. But, you know, we're headed towards this utopia. And God's like, I already brought the utopia to earth. And I showed him to you. Now he sits at the right hand of God and is giving all of you an opportunity to see the fulfillment of you. Because there's only one person in which it is. You are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And there is only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. Not two names, one. And here he is. Uh, there's so many things here that are significant. For instance, the, there's a covenant made to Abraham and then a covenant made to David. Right? David, your son will sit on the throne forever. To Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, through your seed. Uh, and to um, and then, and that's the division. We have Abraham covenant to David covenant. And then they're carried off. But when they're carried off, guess who's there is back in Israel is Jeremiah. And in Babylon is Ezekiel. These two prophets who are contemporary present to Israel something called a new covenant. And the new covenant promised by God was, you guys have completely messed up. You have broken the Mosaic law so terribly. And then he said, I'm going to bring a new covenant to you that you can't break. You broke the old. I'm going to give you one that you can't break. And that's the new covenant. And that one's fulfilled in Christ. So in three fourteens, you have boom, boom, boom covenants. Abrahamic, Davidic, new. And Matthew knows all of this. <laughs> As does God. Now, when the initial readers of his gospel, when they either hear this or read this, we don't know if they get that. But, you know, when God presents truth, the truth has eternal ramifications. Now, some believe that there is more truth in the writings than the authors even know. And it's an interesting concept. We learn about this in hermeneutics class. That You know, there's this idea that as Matthew's writing, because he's under the inspiration of the Spirit, that he's actually including stuff that he doesn't even know. 
that's, you know, some believe that, some don't. I, I actually tend not to believe that. Uh, I think Matthew would know everything that he's writing. It's just that would his readers actually get it all? Who knows? Maybe some would, some don't. Some do, some don't. Same thing as now. People read their Bibles. Some really want to know what's in it, and some are, you know, a superficial reading is good enough. Uh, but there is so much here just in these first, this first section of a genealogy. Bunch of kings. This is a royal list. Uh, Luke. Now, the difference is to Luke is Luke's first off isn't at the beginning of his gospel. It's in chapter 3. Luke sandwiches his genealogy, which doesn't match Matthew's hardly at all. Well, so some say, well, Luke has the genealogy to Mary and Matthew has the genealogy to Joseph. And that's a guess. You just have to. When that was taught to me, that was taught as a fact. It turned out, I find out on my own that it's a guess. All right. It's a good guess, I guess, but you have to know. It's a, it's, a, it's a conjecture. We don't know that for sure. Yeah. So, the role of this in the book of Matthew. Jesus is qualified as Messiah and King by birth. Right? We've already established that, but This is the reason why Matthew is writing it. To reveal that Jesus is qualified by birth as Messiah and King. But we also get from this, and this is an eternal application, because we, though this says the same to us, we have long believed that. Um, But it's what we talked about on Sunday, which is what the one of the main messages that I the Holy Spirit gave to me from this is that out of all of these people in this genealogy, all of which have done, every one of them, sin. They're all sinners. It's all recorded of the ones that we know, and some worse than others. But we have all people born in Adam. Kings or no kings, it doesn't matter. They're sinners. And yet, here comes this one who is born of a virgin, who is born without sin, who is completely unique. And what does that mean? Is that all of us are what? What do we got going for us? Nothing. That's nothing. Now, I, I, you know, you say, <laughs> tell a person, particularly young people in our world, and I say young, I say under 50, and tell them that they're absolutely nothing and worthless without God. Unless they're believers who know that, they're going to take great offense to that. Because they say, I got, I got something going. I have value. I have value. And the only things, and they don't realize that the only things that they do have that could be counted as value have all come from God. They, they have children that they love. Where do you think love came from? Where do you think children came from? Right? They're gifts from God. You didn't create that child. Nor did you create the love that is natural for a parent to a child, especially a mother to a child. You didn't create that. That's in you. God gave you that. The virtues of the fact that people want their rights protected. Where do you think rights came from? The fact that human beings have rights before the law is a Christian idea. It is a solely Christian idea. that has been around for so long that people don't even know it's Christian anymore. It came from God. In essence, what we have on our own, without God, nothing. So they, I read this yesterday. I was just reading Isaiah. That's uh, just reading through Isaiah, and I come across this. That's why. And we talked about this on Zoom. By the way, Zoom has changed to Mondays at four. I have to say that out loud to remind myself because I got a text at four o two yesterday saying, "Hey, are you at, are you having Zoom today?" And I'm like, "Oops." I completely forgot about it. Uh, anyway, we were talking about the fa- all of us reading our Bibles on our own. Whenever you we find the time, I say make the time. To, not have, to have a time where you're just alone with God and the Scripture. 
And yes, if you come across something you don't understand, struggle to try and understand it. I, there's one struggling. The process of struggling to understand has such value in our learning experience. And we, you know, we want all things to come easy to us. If something looks wrong, you know, ask. Ask your pastor. Uh, go look it up online or whatever. But this, you know, this uh, sitting here reading by, on my own, just reading Isaiah for no other purpose. And I come across this, Isaiah 2.22, where God says through Isaiah, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Yeah, and it's a poetic way of saying, what is man? Wind in the nose. That's about all you got going for you. And even that was a gift from God. And he says, why should he be esteemed? And the context is that we're sinners. That we can't do anything. Except we can do bad stuff. You know, left on our own, what are we going to do? Except be selfish and bad. And um, uh, Psalm 8, 3 through 4 is a famous passage. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? What is he? Nothing. We may think that it's virtuous to consider ourselves as nothing. Uh, it can lead to virtue for sure, but it's not virtuous to consider yourself as nothing. You pat yourself on the back for it because it's a fact. That's like, that's like saying you're taking credit for identifying this desk is made out of wood. You know, it's just a fact. You, uh, you and I are worthless. Our value comes from God and him alone. He comes through Christ who came into this world. Uh, Augustine, or Augustine, uh, depending on what professor you talk to, uh, makes a case, and, and he, he wrote this huge book called The City of God, which was an argument. Now, this he wrote this in like, Four something A.D. 450, 460, and it was after the collapse of Rome. Rome was invaded by one of those Goths. I can't remember uh, Ostrogoths, Visigoths, whatever they are. But they invaded, and Rome fell. And he makes a case. He makes an argument in this book comparing the city of Rome and the city of God. And why does the city of God something wonderful, and the city of Rome, though claimed to be wonderful, had fallen to pieces? And one of the cases he makes, which is a brilliant, you know, Augusta, I disagree with pretty much his eschatology and some other things, but he's a, he's a very lucid and, and fairly brilliant thinker. That He says, well, you know, all of these gods that Greece have, the Greeks have worshipped and, now the, and the Romans adopted many of them. Right? So instead of Zeus, they just changed his name. But they adopted him. They changed him to Jupiter. They called Jove. By Jove. took me half a lifetime, even more, to figure out that that's what that means, is by Jupiter. <laughs> so anyway, he says, did any of those gods give laws to the people? I had never thought of this before. Did, you know... Uh, Zeus and Apollo and, and Hera and Athena, did they give laws to the people and say, look, if you, if you live by these laws, you'll prosper? Not one instance. Did the gods of Greece and Rome ever give them laws to follow or encourage them in behavior that would be beneficial, a behavior that was of an ethical kind, that would be beneficial to their lives and societies. Not once. I had never thought of that before. What did the gods give them that they worshipped? Well, they told them, you know, the gods themselves were sinners. But lustful. Uh, fickle. Uh, Zeus slept with everybody. Uh, he's an adulterer. And, and encourage them. Yet gods like Bacchus, who are the goddess of wine, who, you know, encourage fornication and drunkenness and celebrating. 
Did they give them, did any of those gods give to them any laws that would help them in any way? The answer is no. And yet, the Romans and the Greeks lived by laws because their societies had to survive. And those laws came from not their gods, but they borrowed those laws from the one true God. Now, whether they knew of the, the law of Moses or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is, is that, you know, in our world, nothing, nobody has any value or any good other than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one in the line of Christ merited anything. The whole line, the whole genealogy focuses on David, and David here is described by Matthew as the one who had Solomon, begat Solomon by the her who is the wife of Uriah. Now, it is one thing to say you are nothing, and a lot of people say, oh yeah, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. Ascent to it by faith. But it's another thing to live it in the manner that is most virtuous. It, it, it's, it seems so paradoxical, but it is not, that when you see the reality of who you are as nothing before God, that that is the, the beginning of the path of virtue, of actually living under the laws of God. And that's what we're given here. That's what we're to be. That's what Christ gave us. He gave us his life. Now, those who have stated in the past or have lived in the past, of which I was one, in which you know, we're going to accumulate a lot of doctrine in our souls, and yet at the same time we're not going to really live any of it, and that <clears throat> we're just going to you know, live according to the flesh and give in to selfish desires whenever we really feel like it and accumulate lots of doctrine, we have gone nowhere. We've, got, we've done nothing. Because that's not what we were designed for. We're designed to do, to live this. Uh, and that is it. Uh, so one closing remark. Of course, I always got to do that. So Matthew traces the faithful purpose of God in fulfilling his promise despite the rebellion of his people, despite the rebellion of all people, which is all of us. And, and so we have, when we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, well, in terms of application to me, you know, as I am nothing and I have no value in and of myself, um, again, I can say that and I can agree to it, but yet what am I really protecting in life that is mine? Because I need to let it go. What is it? Is it my personality? Is it my things? Is it my money? Is it my pleasure? Is it my addiction that I'm protecting? That I'm hiding in a, like a little room and I've got a padded door over it? What am I protecting <clears throat> that is truly useless? And the more things that I'm protecting that are useless the less I will see of this life. And I must. That's what we're designed for. God didn't come to make us, improve us. He came to kill us. He did. This one who was born of a virgin died so that we could be crucified with him. He didn't make us better. He killed us and made us brand new. So what of the old self am I guarding? Am I protecting? Ask, talk to God about it. Even if you think you know, get on your knees in prayer and talk to him about it. Before this goes by us and we move on to something else, while it's fresh on your mind, ask him. <clears throat> I have done this and it, is, it was enlightening. I say, well, I, you know, I thought of this as an exercise for us. And I said, well, I better do it if I'm going to suggest it. And so I did, and I, you know, I'm like, well, I get on my knees, and I'm like, I, I kind of already know the answer to this, but I'll do it anyway. And lo and behold, if you give, give your brain a few minutes to calm down or to stop thinking about yourself and talk to him, 
And it's amazing what he'll reveal to you. There's things we're holding on to that we need to let go of. To find a far better life, far more freedom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all that you do in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is magnificent and wonderful. May we, Father, uh, live according to this principle of grace that you have bestowed upon us through him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.